Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca. Working side-by-side side with leading scientists to better understand how complex data can be converted into innovative treatments. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about integrative medicine with Dr. Gary Sofer. Dr. Sofer is an assistant professor of clinical pediatrics at the Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at Yale and director of hematologic malignancies at the Yale Cancer Center. What I understand is a part of your life is in pediatrics, but the integrative medicine part is really mostly in adult oncology. Is that right? That's exactly right. So I spend most of my time seeing pediatric allergy patients, and then a portion of my time I get to see adult cancer patients for integrative medicine consults. How did you get involved with kind of that? I mean, I can imagine how you became a pediatric allergist. That seems like a straightforward <laughs> path. So, so how did this other piece come into your life? You know, to me, the integrative medicine portion it seems more logical based on where I'm coming from. Tell. So, I really got into meditation when I was five years old and I was taking a uh, Taekwondo course. No kidding. And, um, you know, the teacher said, sit in front of the class and just pay attention to your breathing. And so I did, and that really informed a lot of how I led my life moving forward. Even at five years of age? Well, I didn't know what it was at the time. Right. You know, well, so why, why did you adopt it? Like what, what, like, what did you notice that made it, or is this being cool like your Taekwondo? <laughs> it was guy? probably a little bit about being cool and yeah. being weird, but, uh -huh. uh, but it was also it was a meaningful experience. I was able to sort of focus on my thoughts and, you know, in retrospect, the way I was thinking and the way I was interacting with the world was was very different as time moved on, and I think you know I have a lot of of that practice to thank for that. Mm -hmm. So you carried a mindfulness practice uh, throughout your life, starting at a young age. Like anybody who practices meditation, you don't. I didn't carry it with me. It comes and goes, right? Like it's with anything. It's like going to the gym or something. Okay. Some months are good and some months are bad. But but it's something that you've always been interested. It's something in. that I've always been interested and in, engaged in. Yeah. Okay. So then then eventually you got to medical school. Mm hmm. So I had a bit of circuitous route. So I, I, after I left college, I worked in the music business for about five years. All right, that's cool. And then after I left the music business, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. <laughs> so you went to medical school. <laughs> well, it was, it was more or less that simple. But I had a cousin who had ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, and he was in the hospital for mm -hmm. about a week. And he, he was miserable. And so I had sort of a time off, and I went to go visit him for a couple of days in a row. We just had a blast. And we had a good time and I watched him starting to heal and I think that made me realize how much the experience of a disease is as important as the disease itself. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what brought me to integrative medicine as a practice was knowing that if we change the experience of patients' disease, then, then we can actually change the disease course on some level. Hmm. And yet I assume you went to a mainstream medical or osteopathic school, which tend to not focus on those elements, right? Yeah. So I actually had a, a really interesting experience. I went to medical school in Israel. Mm. And Israel, I think, don't quote me on it, has, has one of the highest per capita of acupuncturists in the world. Okay. I believe that. And so integrative medicine is actually a really, really big part of, of how they handle 
medical care. You know, one of the facilities I, I worked at there um, was run by an orthopedic surgeon whose sort of requirement was if you want surgery, you need to go see the integrative practitioners first. Hmm. And is that covered by the healthcare system there? I mean, is this part mostly, of... mostly? Uh huh. Yeah. And is it available within sort of uh, mainstream medical centers, or do you have to go? Not, not all, but some. Gotcha. So, so there are larger centers, different hospitals, different situations. Okay. So then, you, then you came here and. Somehow you decided to be a pediatrician or something, right? Yeah, you know, kids kids make me happy. Okay, you know, the best part about being kid, you know, with kids, and I think what I try to apply to integrative medicine as all as well is kids don't really want to be sick, right? Like you have a kid with a fever and they're miserable, but all of a sudden you give them Motrin or Tylenol and they're just running around going crazy like they were before. Mm-hmm. And so, how do we apply that to adult patients? Is we try to take them out of their disease and their existence. You know, I get sick and like I'm miserable in bed for three days. Oh yeah, me too. Know, so. I, I'm a wreck. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my wife stays away from me when I got uh, because I moan. I get all semi delirious and my fever gets you know 103 or something like that. I'm I'm just a wreck. Exactly, but it's, it's also, so needy. It's also yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's also that chatter in our head, right? Like yeah, I might feel fine now, but how am I going to feel in an hour? from now. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, managing that is a lot of what I do with cancer patients Mm. is, you know, cancer patients have, when they get their diagnosis, they have a lot going on in their head. No doubt. And so they're asking themselves, what did I do to deserve this? What could I have modified in my past to change that? Is the cancer getting worse? And then even when they survive, they have that chatter. Is it coming back? Is it coming back? You know, do I have to worry? Should I go to the doctor? And so what kids are really good at is, is not paying attention to any of that. Right. Um, and so I think practices like meditation or yoga can really allow us to sort of be in that present moment and, and just be where we are. Hmm. So did you do formal training in this integrative piece or is it just stuff that you've acquired here and there? So it's a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. There, there is a formal training program at University of Arizona. Okay. That's a fellowship that I'm participating in now. I'm also, you know, trained as a meditation instructor and have a lot of experience in integrative medicine as well. Very interesting. So so let's say that uh, I'm a cancer patient and um, I I don't know anything about integrative medicine, but I've heard – I heard this radio show and sounded like I, something I should be interested. In. Like, what, like, what do I do? I know I can. I'm sure I can get on the web and find any five million advices about things I should and shouldn't do and things I should and shouldn't eat and all this. Yeah, there's stuff. a lot out there. Isn't a lot there? out there. That's oh, some of it's really worrisome. Yeah. Right. So I mean, that's that's the beauty of being someplace like Yale is that we can have this open communication with the patient's oncologist and patients can feel comfortable presenting these questions to us. Should I take this? Should I take that? Should I do this? Should I do that? You know, the the amount of non-disclosure for integrative practices with conventional doctors is, is staggeringly high. I'm, you know? sorry, I'm not sure I got what you meant there. So most patients just aren't sharing with their oncologists or even with their doctors what they're taking and they don't tell they don't exactly. tell about the supplements exactly and stuff, right okay so and doctors don't ask a lot of times absolutely right? absolutely and so what we're doing is you know creating a safe space for those patients mm-hmm. to, to have these conversations and ask these questions and we're also creating a space safe space for the oncologists who intuitively just say don't take it mm-hmm. you know who intuitively say I don't really know about it these medications can interact with your with your chemotherapy just don't take it and so 
I think by, by creating that space, we're giving patients a little bit more autonomy in their care because that's essentially what they're looking for from us. Mm-hmm. And, and we're giving oncologists a little bit more space to say, I don't know, but this person might. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so a patient can ask to be referred to your group. Is that right? Yeah. So they can, they can ask to be referred or they can, you know, or it can be offered to them. <laughs> well, right. But I'm assuming yeah. that a lot of us don't even know that you exist, I'm afraid, so, well, or in other places. That. No, I get yeah. that, of course. <laughs> but in the meantime, so let's just say that that uh, they're seeing Gore and Gore isn't really tuned into that, And uh, but but they could say, gee, I hear there's an integrative practice here. Uh, is it possible to see that person? And, and I could make a referral then, right? Absolutely. Uh-huh. And so what happens when the patient sees you then? So each patient is different, and, and that's sort of the beauty of my job is that I get to tailor each management plan to each patient. So if I have a patient in pain, there's so many different modalities that might connect with different patients. So for some people, it might just be a body scan meditation. A body scan meditation basically lets you focus on each body part and you slowly move through the body as you you follow your breath. Right. Acupuncture might be better for some patients and yoga might even be good for some pain patients. Mm. You know, first of all, it depends on the pain itself. But it also depends on the patient and what they're seeking and, and how much they want to participate in their own care. Mm-hmm. So um, what are some of the things that uh, patients present to you asking for? So you've mentioned pain control, pain management, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so that's, I'm sure, probably a big one. What, what are some of the other symptoms that patients might not know that integrative medicine might be helpful for? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the overarching question is how do I modify my disease? Okay. And so, you know, nutrition comes up quite a bit. Uh, patients do ask about supplements often. Uh, meditation, yoga, they want to know about the services that we're offering at Smilo, mm-hmm. uh, like yoga, like Zumba, like art therapy, and how to get more involved in those things. Gotcha. Um, so, um, so the patient uh, talks to you about it. You have to be familiar with their care plan, I guess, because you don't want to interfere with their conventional care plan. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. You know, there's, there's a lot of misconception about supplements, and the belief is that because they're natural, they're safe for you. Right. But, you know, these supplements go through the same sort of systems as, as their regular drugs do and, and can prevent the drugs from doing their best or can actually cause the drugs to do worse. And, and I'm sure you're likely familiar with the study that came out of Yale last year where, um, as I recall, uh, they looked at patients who opted for non-conventional treatments strictly as opposed to uh, conventional therapies and and show that uh, the survival of patients who did only non-conventional was inferior, uh, which is different than using, you know, integrative medicine in a supplementary way or in a complementary way. I guess complementary is probably a better word, right? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, it's just good medicine. Most of what I'm doing is evidence-based. So I'm asking myself two questions. The first question is, does it work? Right? Because that's pretty important. And then the second question I ask myself is, is this invasive to the patient and their care? Mm-hmm. And so I weigh those two things out. Meditation to me is the perfect example because we know it works on a molecular level on a, you know, directly with patient care. And it's not really invasive at all, maybe to a small degree. But, um, other things, you know, can be quite invasive and, and quite damaging to the patient, and, and they may not be safe, but they may not be invasive at all. You know, so we try to balance those things out. 
you know, one of the important things about opening up integrative centers at places like Yale is that we have these conversations so we can do the best for the patient. Mm-hmm. You know, we the reason we have to ask ourselves why patients are really seeking out these alternative care. And again, it, it goes back to that point of autonomy. Patients really do want some control sure. over their care. You know, you just told them that their body's sort of working against themselves, acting against themselves. And I don't think there's a more powerless feeling than hearing something like that. Right. And so once patients go online and they start looking for things, I think they're just seeking that autonomy. And so if we can hand them that and we can work with them while they're getting their conventional chemotherapy, then I think what you're going to see is that that's probably the best patient care that we can give. Hmm. So let's say uh, the patient sees you and let's say that your prescription and tell me if I'm like making kind of a stupid assumption here or anything, (laughs) uh, is going to include some meditation practice, maybe some yoga, uh, maybe some acupuncture, whatever it is. Uh, And they set that up. Do they come back then in a follow-up visit to get reassessed or? Yeah, absolutely. You know, what what I'm doing takes work from the patient. It's it's not a passive process. And not everything that I, I give to a patient is going to work for them. And I just want them to try it. So yeah, I have patients come see me several times mm. and we try to find a plan that works best for them. And what is the kind of interval there? Like how long do you give the meditation practice, so, if you will. Uh, I mean, is two weeks of daily meditation going to be enough to see if it's helping? Or? I usually see patients uh, at about one-month intervals if, if that's what works for them. But gotcha. once, they find a, once they find a system that works best for them, then, you know, I send them off. And, and then they're on autopilot, but they can come back. They can always come back refresher. and see me. Yeah, yeah. Great. Well, this is fascinating. Right now, we need to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about integrative medicine with Dr. Gary Sofer. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to change how cancer is treated with personalized medicine. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about genetic testing, which can be useful for people with certain types of cancer that seem to run in their families. Patients that are considered at risk receive genetic counseling and testing so informed medical decisions can be based on their own personal risk assessment. Resources for genetic counseling and testing are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers. Interdisciplinary teams include geneticists, genetic counselors, physicians, and nurses who work together to provide risk assessment and steps to prevent the development of cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm joined tonight by my guest, Gary Sofer, and we've been discussing the field of integrative medicine, particularly as it applies to cancer patients. So, Gary, uh, you know, before the uh, break, you were talking about uh, the variety of modalities of uh, complementary care, which can be helpful to patients uh, in symptom management, including meditation practice, yoga, uh, you mentioned uh, acupuncture, and so on. Uh, so. Is that stuff that your um, your group supplies, or do you refer out? You know, it seems like a lot of people might want those services. There's not that many of you. Yeah, so it, d- it depends on the, on the practice. We offer classes like yoga, um, meditation, 
inpatient, we offer massage therapy. That's probably one of the biggest pieces of what we do, mm-hmm. um, and Reiki as well. Acupuncture at this point is something we have to refer out to, but you know, when we think about the long-term trajectory of, of where we want to take our program, uh, acupuncture is definitely going to be a big piece of that. Right. And I think there's quite a number of acupuncturists in the area in Connecticut. There are. There are. You know, the, the question becomes, and this is with all of integrative medicine, is sort of how do you standardize it and, and how do you sort of seek out the right practitioner? Um, the standard which I go by is that Sloan Kettering actually has an acupuncture training program hmm. that people can do. And so what I generally recommend to patients is that they seek out practitioners who have gone through that program. Wow. And how common is that? can't be that common. So it's actually fairly common because acupuncturists have some degree of continuing medical education requirements. Hmm. And so if you sort of incentivize them to say – hey, these are the patients that uh, – these are the practitioners that I'm referring out to. They're more motivated to take classes like that. Right. And so if they've taken classes like that, uh, that helps them understand uh, how how to use their modality better, particularly for the treatment of cancer? Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. Now, so, Gary, I'm going to challenge you a little bit, and, and I really want to state, first of all, that I come from a – uh, place uh, where I'm um, very interested in the kind of work that you're talking about, and 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 I buy into it conceptually. So uh, I don't mean this to be hostile. No challenge away. No. So, uh, <laughs> but but I'm also a scientist, and um, um, what do you think about uh, the issue about patients while they want autonomy and um, ownership? Of their disease, if you will, uh, the, the the worry that then when things don't work out the way they want, that somehow they're self-blamed. Do you do you find that at all? I don't. Or worry about it? I don't. And I think I think if there's actually more self-blame if they have the instinct to take the autonomy, but don't. Mm-hmm. And I think if they don't explore the questions that they're internally asking themselves about, should I try this? Maybe this will work simply because they're in a conventional medical system, if they don't get better, they begin to question themselves, should I have done this or should I have done that? Hmm. Yeah, no, I think back, again, this is just anecdotally, to a really wonderful young man that I took care of when I was at Johns Hopkins. He was in his late 20s or 30, uh, avid soccer player uh, who had a, a bad leukemia, or at least it was leukemia that turned out to be bad. And... Um, and he had done a lot of stuff about focusing on his stem cells and thinking about his healthy stem cells. And he, I think he had a stem cell transplant and a real a lot of visualizing. We, we had people uh, there who, you know, helped with visualization therapy and stuff like that. I think maybe it was our social work. I don't remember. And then when his leukemia returned, he felt like, gee, and I, I did all that visualizing and it still came back. And I think they ask themselves the same thing about chemotherapy when their cancer comes back. Good point. Good point. And, of course, I, I did my best to uh, assuage him uh, that, yeah, you did your best and cancers are really tough. And uh, it's so wonderful that you did that and I wouldn't stop doing that Right. Uh, if it's meaningful to you. Um, and, that, and that's the biggest issue is how do we change that experience of the disease? Because while he was going through what he was going through and doing the visualization, it was meaningful for him. And it was very empowering. Exactly. Um, exactly. But I, I, I do remember that sour 
feeling, bitter feeling that he had. But I think your, your point is well taken that I, I went through eight months of chemo and I had a stem cell transplant and my leukemia came back like, you know, that's just not right. And, of course, it isn't right. Right. No, of course. <laughs> of course. Where is the boundary between what you do and spiritual practice? And how do you interface with uh, the chaplaincy and people's, you know, spiritual sides? I realize, you know, meditation practice can be a very important part of many religious walks. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and there is no boundary between what I do and spiritual practice. And it's a big part of what I do. You know, oftentimes I'm in a room with a patient and we, we talk about their spiritual practice and... A lot of times they've just sort of let it go to the wayside and, and they're finally seeking it out again, but they don't know how because it's been so many years. Hmm. You know, I do interface quite a bit with chaplaincy. And what's interesting is I'm actually getting referrals from chaplains. No, I'm not surprised. We have which, a very spiritual chaplain group. <laughs> which, is, which is awesome. You know, part of my prescription a lot of times is giving patients readings by books by Thomas Merton or, you know, by – a. a Tibetan Lama called Mingyur Rinpoche, who talks about death and dying. Mm. You know, connecting connecting with the greater world and and sort of a, a spiritual higher level, whatever that means to you, whether that's God or anything else, is is so important in these diseases. Because as we were discussing before, you do sort of start to ask yourself all of these existential questions that may not have answers, and sometimes faith. Can, can give you that answer. Well, suffering and end-of-life issues and post-end-of-life issues are really at the heart of so many religious seekings, I, I, I guess, and teachings. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, look, this is, this is a little bit more esoteric, but I'm— <laughs> That's okay. Go for it. <laughs> but I, I'm of the firm belief that you can, you can die healed from your disease. I mean, it's no secret that everybody dies. You right. know? But how we die is, is a really important question and how we live our lives up until the moment of our death is, is, is a really important question. And I think spirituality, whether that's religion or not, can give you a really nice foundation for approaching the, those moments. You know, that's, that's really fascinating, Gary, um, to me because I, um, I think a lot about um, my patients uh, or patients' of colleagues uh, who near the end of life and my own personal experience and family members with end of life. And um, there are some who um, come to end of life with an amazing grace, literally, uh, and whether it's spiritually, uh, you know, religiously founded or not, I think is variable. Some people come with what I would describe as true grace Mm -hmm. and accepting the end of their life and making it meaningful and all that stuff. And then there's people like my mom who uh, were just going to go screaming and, you know, fighting till the end until her body didn't let her. Right. And uh, makes us a little sad in retrospect because we weren't really allowed to talk about death with her. Um, that was pretty clear that we, we couldn't do that. So um, I guess I'm looking uh, to you uh, probably unrealistically uh, about what distinguishes those people and to what extent do you think your uh, – the kinds of uh, approaches that you uh, foster or offer can help move people uh, in the direction of, of – 
grace. Uh, and I use that word not in a technical sense, mm-hmm. I mean, really in a kind of my emotional response to it, uh, if that's their goal. So, I, you know, I want to— Maybe that was too complicated. <laughs> no, no, no. I, but I, I want to sort of—you touched on a point that's, that's actually really important, and it doesn't directly answer your question, which I, I want to do. But, you know, treating the family around the patient is so important in what we do. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had patients come see me with their loved ones, and I'll often— turn to the loved ones and say, what are you doing to take care of yourself? Mm. And on more than one occasion, they've just broken down because I think it's the first time somebody asked them that. Mm-hmm. And the trauma and the tragedy and the guilt that you're dealing with as, as somebody who's around somebody you love and doing your best to be in service to them but, but not being in service to yourself is, is a really challenging experience. No doubt. You know, so what distinguishes a patient who is able to deal with their own mortality versus one that's not? Right. I think that's 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 a very big question that <laughs> a lot of religions have, have done their best We've to answer. We've got five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what I do think is, you know, back to mindfulness meditation, you know, because it does stem from Tibetan Buddhism, mm-hmm. which is actually very focused on death and dying. Um, really gives us a nice opportunity to work on being present in the moment. You know, uh, if, if we're not so much caught up in the, in the chatter like I was talking about before of what's going to happen next mm-hmm. as opposed to what's happening right now, mm-hmm. those, those moments of death and dying can actually be transformative and, and, and really change us and change the people around us. Hmm. Focusing on the process or just being there. Yeah. 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 And look, that's I mean, there's there's a lot of overlap between what I do and what palliative care is doing, mm-hmm. you know, because because so much of that is is, is deeply, deeply connected. Um, yeah. Yeah. I can, I can tell you, as um, you may have gathered from my last question, that I I have ex- I experienced that with my patients, the patients who really. Um, have this kind of uh, acceptance and grace uh, impacts me. Mm-hmm. It impacts me as a physician and impacts me as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I want that. I want what that person has. Right. Um, I, I would like it all the time, and I certainly hope that I can have that w- when the time comes for end of life. But I I don't know. I, I, I chatter a lot about like... <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, there's, there's, a, there's a great documentary about Ram Dass, who was like a big spiritual leader in the 60s, and Ram Dass had, had a stroke, and he was talking in the documentary about his experience with this stroke, and he said, all I could think about is, I don't want to die, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. And here I had been this big spiritual leader who's talking wow. about death and dying and all this, you know, and he said, I, I realized I had some, some growth to do, even at that moment when I thought I was about to die. Hmm. I was recently uh, had the wonderful opportunity to do a workshop uh, at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, uh, which, uh, as you may know, sponsors a lot of alternative if you will, yeah. kinds of things. And um, and you get to, you know, the meals are done communally for people. There's like six different workshops going on at a time on the weekend or something like that. And um, what I didn't know is there was a workshop going on about um, – well, I forget what they would call it, but it was like exceptional healing or something like that. And, uh, um, you know, people with cancer and other problems were, you know, looking to mindfulness and um, 
and other features to, you know, as part of their healing. And um, wow, it was really uh, interesting for me to, to share meals with them, uh, you know, many of them in cancer. And of course, I, I understood that. Uh, but they, you know, they, they didn't talk a lot about their cancer. They really were talking about the process and uh, what you've said about the kind of feeling of ownership. And just think about some of these people who are traveling quite a long ways uh, to come to Omega Institute to do that. I'm sure there's many other places that do similar things. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a profound difference between a cancer patient and a patient with cancer, mm-hmm. meaning that doesn't have to define you. It doesn't have to be who you are. And and there's so many more elements of who you are and how you live your moments and and your day-to-day. And I think that's what a lot of people are really seeking out. Yeah, I mean, one of the beautiful things, a a gentleman with brain cancer, glioblastoma, who was, uh, you know, cognitively seemed pretty normal to me, uh, and his wife was, (laughs) she had a lot of grace. And, you know, uh, she would kind of talk to us on the side once in a while you know, um, showing that, you know, he, that there were limitations, um, that, that she was of his, that she was dealing with, but in such a generous and loving fashion. I mean, it was really, really pretty amazing. Yeah. It's how we interact with these diseases and how we interact with the people around us that I think is at the heart of integrative medicine. Dr. Gary Sofer is an assistant professor of clinical pediatrics at the Yale School of Medicine, specializing in integrative medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.